Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and for this episode I visited the University College London Observatory as astronomers prepare to unveil their new 80-centimetre telescope. Also yields the coldest and the driest nights, which is the best for observing and the darkest, of course. Yeah, so it's a bit of a trade-off. And summer, where people think, you know, there's less bad weather, is actually get the shortest nights, and it's quite humid. Oh yeah, so it's kind of a trade-off, yeah. University College London Observatory was opened in 1929 by then-astronomer royal Sir Frank Watson Dyson. Today it teaches students of astrophysics how to observe the night sky and capture data that can help unlock the secrets of the universe. I had been invited by the team at UCL to visit the observatory and view the latest addition to their fleet, an 80-centimetre Cassegrain called the Perrin Telescope, ahead of its unveiling that night. So I'm standing here with uh, Giorgio Savini, who is the director of the uh, observatory here at uh, University College London. Uh, Giorgio, thanks, thanks for inviting me up today and for, for showing me around. Thank you for coming. Uh, and we're, we're actually standing um, in the dome of the... Uh, the Perrin Telescope, which I suppose is, is, hasn't, hasn't been unveiled yet. It's going to be unveiled tonight, isn't it? Correct, yes. Um, I, I suppose it's worth kind of starting off um, a bit discussing about like, the, the observatory's purpose here and, and, and what sort of research you do and what sort of facilities are available to, to UCL students. Sure. So, so um, this observatory was inaugurated 90 years ago, as it happens, in 1929. And um, this, we're standing here in, in what is the original building. So the very first building that was built on this site 
which was sort of goes back to 1927 and then it was unveiled in 1929, uh, was erected uh, as a result of a donation of a telescope, which was the Wilson Telescope, uh, from the astronomer uh, W. Wilson, who was a fellow of the Royal uh, Society at the time. Uh, and he donated, it, in fact, it was donated by his son, but they donated this very large telescope, which was state-of-the-art at the time. And um, as a result of that, the University of London uh, talked to the Hendon Council and they, they, they got this plot of land and they built this very building where we're standing in now and the telescope would have been placed pretty much under this dome. It would have been a slightly different dome because the actual dome itself has been changed, I think, three times since then. Um, it's now modern and robotic and everything. But, um, but yes, it would, we would have been exactly in here. And uh, it's funny enough because Perrin, this telescope comes as a result of 14 years of uh, funding campaign. Uh, funds uh, accrued through either donations of UCL alumni and uh, visitors who come here on a Friday evening. Uh, there's public tours which are being booked through, uh, through uh, the astrophysics group, but they, you know, there's people of Hendon, people across London and from anywhere else. And, uh, and they've left, you know, small donations sometimes because they're, uh, they, they like the facility. And finally, the biggest single donation was from the parent fund, which has a whole separate story altogether. But this is, you know, 90 years later, we have a telescope, which is state of the art again, as a result of donations again, and in exactly the same place. I think it's definitely worth talking about the, the telescope itself, because it's, it's, it's absolutely towering over us here. Um, what's the, what size is the aperture and, and what, what sort of telescope is it? So this is a classical Cassegrain, uh, and that means it's got two, two mirrors. Uh, it's, so it's, it's a reflecting telescope, not a refracting telescope. The, the number that usually people associate with uh, telescopes to understand what their capacity is, is the size of the primary mirror, which in this case is 80 centimeters. So in layman terms, it's the, it's the size of the bucket with which you collect your photons effectively. And, um, um, yeah, so the telescope comes from a company called Astelco, and they, they won the tender back, back in the time. And, uh, and it was installed, we actually, you know, it touched the, the top of this column in June this year, earlier this year. So it's gone through installation and there are, um, adjustments, and we've been commissioning for this through the summer. And we've done, uh, taken a few images already, and it's, you know, it's getting ready for the students to use. Ah, so, so it's already had its first light, so to speak? It has had its first light to begin with because the, the very first thing it does once they set it on, the, on its pods is to make sure the, op, the general optics, so the, the primary mirror and the secondary mirror, they're aligned. And that is done with the, the, the technicians of the telescope come here from the company and they make sure that everything is in place and, and uh, you know, that way we, we pay them after we know it works. <laughs> uh, but then there is the pointing model. That's where we come in as people who use telescopes routinely and you have to point, literally, you have to point the telescope in every direction. doesn't matter what star is there at the time, but you have to make sure that the, all of the different orientations of the telescopes are tested because the telescope is heavy, it's got weights in different positions, and placing it in different positions means that it could bend under the effect of gravity or other elastic distortions. Uh, and all of this is... Uh, calculated and computed in the software which runs the telescope. So as long as you check where the stars are, record their position, do micro adjustments, and at the end of the day you have a, a telescope which uh, will produce you know, nice and clear images of what you want to see. And so what um, exactly are you able to see with this telescope? And I suppose more importantly, what, what will it be used for observing? 
So yes, so um, there is a variety. So astrophysics is a very, very wide field, and there are many, many different observables and, and, and interests go from solar system objects to uh, our galaxy and other stars, uh, exoplanets, and then outside our galaxy, deep field, extragalactic uh, things. Some, some things in astronomy can't be accessed at all from the ground. That's why you need satellites. And the things that we can access from the ground uh, depend on what wavelength and, and, and how bright these things are. So what we do from here, generally as a site, even before we look at this telescope in particular, is access all of those observables, those things in astrophysics that are feasible from a site like this, and there's plenty of. Uh, this telescope in particular, being bigger and, and having a very good camera at, at the back of it, allows us to achieve uh, very deep images in a shorter amount of time rather than the other telescopes that we have. So we have two, also another two robotic telescopes, which are... Uh, uh, Celestron, so they're, they're uh, 35 centimeters in diameter for comparison. Um, so we can do things quicker and uh, deeper. At the same time, um, there are things that, that you can't do unless you have this category of telescope. And with that, I'm referring to things like um, near-Earth asteroids. So targets which are, f are faint, but um, you can't necessarily build up all the light you want just by staring, which is what tends to happen with distant galaxies. In fact, we've got some excellent images with the other small telescopes, just you keep on adding, adding, adding images. Asteroids move, and as a result of that, you need to be able to see them before they move. So on top of this telescope improving on what we have, it allows us to explore things we couldn't do before as well. I suppose one of the things that people might think of is we're quite close to London, so how, how much of a problem is, is something like light pollution? So light pollution is quite a significant issue, but as I said, the, the various difficult, different astrophysical observables, you kind of pick and choose what is more or less affected. So there are techniques as well that you can implement. Uh, for example, uh, you can do rapid imaging. So instead of saying, I, I need enough light, so I'm going to stare at the sky for 20 minutes, I can still collect 20 minutes worth of light, but by taking many, many, say, 20 images of a minute or uh, 60 or, or 40 images of 30 seconds. So as long as I achieve the same amount of light through many different images, light pollution can be less of an issue. Uh, however, we do, we do have to um, pick and choose our battles. So uh, we are lucky because we are sitting uh, in the middle between two allotments, and that gives us an extra a bit of dark sky. We have the park on the other side of, of Watford Way, and we have a very good relationship with Transport for London. So the lights that you might have noticed on the street, they come up in the evening, they have a bit of a shield, and they're uh, warm lights as well, so they don't have the LEDs, which can be quite uh, frustrating in the, in the blue side of the spectrum. So we, we, you know, we liaise with uh, TfL and... and um, and the surrounding areas in Barnet Council. That's quite good because I, I think quite a lot of people um, around the country, like a, a lot of amateur astronomers, would kind of sympathise with you and it can be quite often difficult to articulate to people the, the reasons behind preventing light pollution, can't it? I mean, but, but obviously you, you haven't really had a problem in that, in that regard. Well, we, we do keep an eye on, you know, developments and things, you know, there's sometimes there's the, the we, behind us, it's not, really close by, there's the M1 though, behind us. So, you yeah. know, if, if they decide they want to try and put a, like a, a really large poster board with LEDs all over it, we might try and see, you know, can, we, can they put it 500 meters further down or, or something like that. The truth of the matter is there is some element of light pollution that you're never going to get rid of. If we point down on the horizon in the south, there's London. 
And, and you know, that's not going away. Uh, and we don't want it to. We like London. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but the point is that you, you pick your battles. So the things you want to see, for example, we can do exoplanets rather, rather easily here. The light pollution does not become an obstacle. I sympathize with all the, the amateur observers, uh, you know, around the country because um, clearly you can do more when you have a dark sky. And dark skies are becoming a very precious commodity in this day and age. And I'll give you another problem, which is often less thought of, and it's, and it's looming in our future uh, headlights, and those are um, swarms of satellites. We think of satellites, uh, you know, the occasional, sometimes people actually want to see, for example, the ISS and, you know, the passage, I'm going to check this satellite. But actually, when you're taking uh, tens of images of an object that you're interested in, sometimes you have to throw away the odd image that has streaks because there's a satellite passing through. There are also techniques to get rid of that particular streak. Um, but there are now massive constellations going up. Um, there's um, uh, both, I think, both Elon Musk and, and uh, Amazon and, and there are other companies which want to put up hundreds, if not thousands, of satellites, and that's going to be a big interesting battle for amateur astronomers to deal with. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I think just um, it, it's also worth discussing because this is a, a University College of London observatory. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's obviously open to students. I mean, it is, what yeah. sort of student? That, so can students kind of come up here and, and, and do their research and, and actually yes. capture data? Yes, student, students come here. This is primarily, it is a teaching facility. We do research as well, but it is a primarily a teaching facility. So students do come here, in the, both in the Astro and the Physics cohort, they come here in year one. Every student in the physics astronomy department has been here. Uh, and then it's the astronomy, uh, the astrophysics students who, who will come here every year throughout their degree. Uh, in year one, they mainly use, uh, they first use the Fry, which is the older of our telescopes. It is completely mechanical manual, and it requires them. It's quite big, if you, if you see it. It's, it's got only a 20 centimeter lens, which compared to this is you know, more modest, but it's quite nice, and it, it's fully functional. 
uh, it dates back to 1862. They learn all the basics of astronomy there. They learned how an astronomy would have done things once upon a time. Then they get a chance of using the robotic telescopes as well, which are the smaller uh, C-14s. Um, they learn this in, at the end of year one. They come back in year two to uh, refine their computational skills and the data analysis. And then they come again in year three. And in year three, there's that transition from us teaching them what to do and how to do it into these are the current research problems that are ongoing. You know, take a shot at these. And, and they learn, again, modern state-of-the-art techniques whilst doing pieces of research. Occasionally, when you, you, you get students who actually manage to contribute to, to research in before they even get to their degree. And, uh, you know, we have the occasional paper coming out as well. Yeah. Have, have there been many major discoveries at the observatory over the years? Um, I, ca I, ca I can't speak for going back in the decades, but uh, so recently there, there has been a discovery of a supernova in 2014. And, and that's more of a serendipitous thing because, of course, you know, you, you can't predict where that's going to happen. So if it happens, but it does require constancy of observance. And that was, by the way, was done by uh, four first year students together with Dr. Steve Fossey. So they were observing one night uh, during a teaching uh, session. And they, took, they decided to take the picture and they, you know, uh, Dr. Fossey observed that there was something quite different about this picture. And then when compared to archive data, they, they noticed that there was something, an extra source, an extra star, which turned out to be a supernova. But so it requires follow-up, it requires submitting the, the correct paperwork to, to register it. At the same time, there is on the opposite scale of serendipity, so of actual constant observance. We, we regularly monitor things like uh, uh, Gaia alerts. So there's this satellite from the European Space Agency, which is Gaia, and it spews daily alerts of targets of interest. So a, a star that's increased its luminosity, so potentially something's happening there, there's a nova uh, or microlensing effect, or there is the opposite, you know, some star that might be decreasing luminosity. And so if we have an observing session, we look at these targets of interest, and it's usually performed mostly by students. Students have access to all this information. They pick the targets of interest, and we help them follow up. It's absolutely fantastic. But one thing I was really interested in what you were saying about there was the um, the fact that this is all kind of automated and robotic. So, so presumably, this this can kind of this, this has like a mount that can track across the sky, and can can the dome itself move? And correct. So yes, the, the robotic. I, I usually tend to make the distinction because uh, robotic for... Uh, you, you might think of robotic as the, the, the telescope is following the target. Um, and that's true on top of the fact that a real robotic telescope, which is currently the C-14s that we have, the smaller telescopes, they are fully automated and robotic. And what that means is that you can... The students can submit... Uh, we call it a job, but it's basically a target to observe. Uh, and it might be raining outside. The dome is closed, we've got weather sensors, so nothing's going to happen. But then they go home in, in the evening, and then maybe in the weekend, or Sunday morning at 1 a.m., suddenly the sky clears. The dome will open, the telescope will point that target if it's in the field of view, and it will take the images that the student required, and once it finishes its job in the morning, when it does the flat field correction, it will send an email to the student saying, your images are here waiting for you. That is what we refer to as fully robotic. This one is also automated and robotic in the sense that it does all the following of the target and it's got a, a software which allows you to pick the targets in an automated way. However, we're not at the point where you can uh, send the jobs to this telescope from your armchair at home, which you can do with the other smaller ones. That will come next. Was there ever a um, thought of um, producing or, or building a telescope for the um, university observatory 
that's you know in somewhere like La Palma, you know, you know something like that. So it's very interesting you should say that. So many universities have opted, I guess, to have some form of link or collaboration with major facilities. There are many world-class telescopes around the world, uh, and, and a lot of the academics in the astrophysics group, so myself, uh, our teaching fellows, and other, other uh, professors in Group A, uh, we have been around the world. I've been to Hawaii observing, some people have been Canary, in the Canary Islands in La Palma, some people have been in Chile observing, depending what wavelength you, you tend to do your research in. Um, we think, we think we want the best of both worlds, in a sense. So it is true that you have a telescope of two meters in the Palma, that is definitely worth you know, having, a, having experience at. The truth of the matter is those telescopes are usually used for research which is not accessible for students. So you might get you know, the odd trip to go and see or experience. Here, this is a hands-on observatory. Students come here, they are in charge of the observation, they, they take their data. Each, we want each student to leave having their own set of data. So we try and make it sure. But as you can imagine, the weather from London plays its part. Yeah. Uh, we've got about a one in three night success in terms of, of, of observing time. So what we have is also an agreement with a suite of robotic telescopes called Telescope Live. And what we do with them is they, uh, we allow students to submit to those telescopes. So there's one in Spain, one in Chile, one in Australia that allows the students not only to be able to have maybe a little bit more success time in terms of weather, but also to access the full sky, because here we're in the northern hemisphere, so you can't necessarily see every target. Mm. Um, you had mentioned at the start there about the um, observatory hosting public events, so yeah. could, could someone listening to this um, visit, the, uh, visit the observatory and, and, and have a go? Um, should, should they be staying in London? Yes, yeah, so we have, uh, it's, it's not so much a casual thing. So we have uh, every other Friday, so we have a, 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 an outreach program that dates back to the, when the, the observatory was first opened in 1929. So we have, every other Friday, we have public tours. Uh, they are booked through the UCL website. So people can go there and, you know, click, there's a link. Um, uh, it's, it's, the, the website's been improved recently, so I, I can't necessarily remember the URL off the top of my head. <laughs> but there is definitely a link people can, can book. And I have to say, it's a pleasure, but also can be a problem, that the links, the bookings go quite fast. Right. So if you, know, if, you, if, you, if you turn up in London next week, chances are there's not going to be necessarily a, a, a place. However, there are, there, are, uh, there are tours which happen every other week on a Friday evening. At the same time, we have Wednesday schools, so there are, we have an outreach coordinator in the department which uh, schools get in contact with and we have school trips that come here both Wednesday mornings and Wednesday afternoon. We give them a little, uh, a little lecture you know, tailored for the class and then they have their tour of the facility. So we try and keep you know, engagement both at the general public and you know, for, for educational purposes as well. That's good to hear. Um, just uh, uh, finally, um, what sort of uh, research are you going to be carrying out in this? Uh, like with Will you be using this for your own research? So we, we do, so at the moment we've, we've had a, an extensive program of monitoring of exoplanets. So one of the big strengths of the astrophysics group here is their involvement in exoplanet spectroscopy. So there is a professor, which is Professor Giovanna Tinetti in the astrophysics group, who is the PI, which means principal investigator for the aerial ESA mission, um, which is gonna be launched in, in about 10 years or nine years, and, and it's gonna be doing exoplanet spectroscopy. In order to maximize the efficiency of said missions, they want to have exact timing of the transits of these exoplanets. And there are many telescopes around the world of medium and small size which help with this. And we, 
We already did this before. We've been doing it for a decade, even before my time as a director. Uh, we will continue and we will improve to do that with this telescope. At the same time, we want to start, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we want to start entering in a new field, which is the monitoring of near-Earth asteroids, which this facility now allows us to. Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Savini, thanks very much for inviting me up today and showing me around, and, and we'll look forward to the uh, unveiling later on. But yeah, uh, You're very welcome. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. So I'm here at the uh, University College London Observatory um, with uh, Professor Raman Prinja, um, who's the uh, Professor of Astrophysics and the head of de the department here. Um, Raman, thanks very much for speaking to me today. It's a pleasure, Ian. Pleasure. And uh, the reason we're uh, speaking tonight is because we're um, getting together to have a chat ahead of the unveiling of a new telescope here. What can you tell us about, uh, about the, new, the new scope? Well, this is, I'm very this is a very proud evening for me, actually. I think the, the new telescope, the 80-centimetre Perrin telescope that we're going to unveil and celebrate here... Um, Coinciding incidentally with the 90th anniversary of this observatory marks a, a, an advancement in what we can achieve now in education in astronomy here. I think we've always prided ourselves in hosting the premier educational observatory in the UK. And I think from here on in, we definitely are that uh, in the sense that we will now be in a position to continue to provide our undergraduates with a uh, inspirational teaching in terms of providing them with techniques that are what modern astronomers are using and also to inspire a very wide range of people from children to public outreach events. I think we're really in a fantastic position to move forward with the observatory and uh, I think we have terrific plans and this is a major moment but I'm hoping that there'll be many more coming forward as well from this. I think it's, it's interesting that you've you've mentioned that that um, it's uh, also happens to coincide with the ninetieth uh, anniversary of, of the observatory. So I mean, it, it's it's kind of worth maybe 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 dwelling a bit on its past. What what sort of research has it been involved in over the over the decades? Um, initially, I mean, I, I, way back, we would have had a lot of work done with photographic plates and observations and cataloging and supporting observations of variable stars, for example, and, and, and the likes. More recently, as we've ex expanded and developed using CCD detectors, we've been in a position where, despite challenges against light pollution in this area, we have been observing exoplanets, right, and differential photometry with exoplanets, which is really impressive when you think about what, we, what that is. Um, the other thing that's, that we have you have the advantage with is that with a succession of undergraduates coming through doing projects and experiments here you build a long-term database which you couldn't obviously do in any other way if you were looking at long-term temporal changes in stars in binary stars in, in all kinds of variable transient systems to have this long database whether it's for exoplanets or stars provides a very interesting way of 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 a new form, a form of research you couldn't do on major telescopes because you wouldn't get them for hundreds of nights yeah. and build that up. Uh, you know, we're even in the position that you, through the expertise of our staff in the department, it's a very large department, can try new techniques, even in, in terms of exploring aurorae around Jovian planets. Um, and you can even discover supernova. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you, you were mentioning light pollution because I, I suppose when the, when the observatory was originally built, it, it must have been quite far away Absolutely. from the lights of London, but, but London has just expanded. And uh, have, have you kind of felt the, uh, the, um, 
the uh, consequences of that? Uh, very much so. I and mean, obviously, in, in, in 1929, this would have been a very, very dark site and, and presumably some spectacular night sky views from here. Uh, <clears throat> we're right now, we're sitting up with a major, we're now placed in a major dual carriageway. There are developments going on all around us now. And uh, it's a serious challenge, actually, for a place like this. It involves campaigning and educating a wide range of people, I suspect. There's a lot of pressure in London, understandably, for, for more housing, for more accommodation, and there are various politicians who are signed up to providing that, and uh, some of those are quite close to this site. Mm. So it, it's a question of us educating and saying, providing some some pressures back, I suppose, in a sense. And we are, mm-hmm. but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's, it's not easy to protect dark skies in London. They're a long lost cause. <laughs> uh, but what we have to work hard on that. And then some of the ambitions we have going forward will look, require this again. You know, I'm sure it, it's something with which the uh, Royal Observatory Greenwich can, can sympathise. Are, are, are like, yes. Do you work in tandem much with them in terms of research and, and, and education and things like that? We do in outreach. And personally, I have also myself in outreach. I've given, given lectures there to, to in outreach, uh, which I'm involved with, to school children parties there. But we don't have a formal connection in that sense. Um, our connections primarily in, are with schools, local schools, who we, as part of the department's outreach mission, are engaged with, either with partly with the Ogden Trust and through ourselves as well. So we have a connection where we engage with the students before they come here, when they're here, and then we follow up afterwards with that. So um, but with the, with the, uh, with the uh, Observatory of Greenwich, we're not formally partnered, but we have a lot of staff who go there, including myself. Uh, the uh, telescope that's going to be unveiled tonight... Um the apparent telescope. What can you tell us about its origins? And I mean, why did this did the decision come about to to add a new telescope? And what will this give give the observatory that you didn't have before? I think. Well, okay. To, we needed to modernise from what we had in that particular dome. We had the Allen telescope in there. Um, it was now a system that was dating back many many decades. The expertise, for example, on the technology that is behind that. Uh, is no longer here in some level. We're talking about, you know, not the, not the most current digital system uh, and far from it. So we, were, we needed a major upgrade of not just the telescope, but also the system behind it and the dome. So I think we took the decision that rather than replacing a few boards, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for us to just change some back-end components. We needed an overhaul. We decided almost a decade ago that we would go for a... <laughs> a paradigm shift, if you like, yeah. in that respect, because it's the whole package, right? It's not the telescope, it's, it's what we've just seen demonstrated to us, the drives, the computerized system behind it, the precision that we need. It needed a new a new form of thinking, and I think I'm really pleased that we managed to achieve this. And then there's been a lot of hard work and, and a lot of people behind this project. It's great to be here today. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I was I was just uh, reading a bit of bit of the, about the um, kind of past research that the UCL has done, and I mean, I, I was reading about ob- observations of um, volcanic plumes on on on, on uh, Jupiter's moon Io. I mean, just absolutely crazy things like that. I mean, presumably with the the, the new parent parent telescope, you're going to be able to get even closer to to the things that you're already studying. Um. Yes, in, com- in combination with clever techniques. I, I mean, there are still limitations with that. I mean, with, with, when you're studying aurora around Jovian planets, it's possible, and you, but you need some clever techniques. We particularly are relying on differential detections quite a lot. So, you know, you, you've got a background noise. We just discussed, discussed light pollution and all kinds of interference. But if you work differentially, if you're subtracting signals, and this is how the exoplanet research, of course, is very important, 
you can make some tremendous progress in that area. But I think I'll come back to the, to the original thing as head of department, the way I see it, this is an educational facility. I, I mean, let's not, I mean, it's obvious if we are going to do tremendous amounts of research, and we are, we're not doing it to do it here. What we're going to do here is motivate the next, this generation of, of, of undergraduates and master students, and in particular, the next generation. Uh, so I think it's an, it's an educational facility, but it's a 21st century educational facility. So um, when you kind of think of the, the, the problems that, um, well, not the problems, but the um, questions that, that lie ahead of astronomy and, and astrophysics, like dark matter, dark energy, and kind of further study of gravitational waves, f- further detections, it, it, is that kind of how you, how you, how you envisage the uh, programme that the students are taking, it, it, it kind of preparing them for, for, well, for answering those kind of questions? Not, obviously not directly, yeah. but certainly in terms of motivating them onto the subject, right? They will meet here some of the scientists who are working on those projects. They will do research projects in their degree with them, Possibly not, not here, but it, it'll motivate them. It'll engage them in, in frontier work that's going on. Uh, so I think it's got a huge role to play in that sense, to, to inspire those students to take on and work with staff in our department who are indeed at that cold face of trying to understand dark energy and, 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 and gravitational waves and, and, and uh, stellar astrophysics, incidentally. <laughs> so, yes. It's a question of, mo- of inspiring them. But what about also y- your own research? Pre- uh, presumably, you're kind of looking forward to getting your hands on, on, on a bit of uh, a, a data capture time. My main my research is on the study of massive stars and um, in their lead up to before detonating in supernovae. We study the, the evolution of massive stars and the drivers behind what determine their end parts. So whether they turn into neutron stars and black holes requires how they evolve understanding of how they evolve. That's what I work on. Um, directly, this observatory won't help me in that sense. But again, it, it's, it comes back to saying there are programs, that are monitoring programs that can take place here at some level where we will have a decent spectrograph here. It'll be interesting that we could do long-term monitoring of some of the brightest stars and understand their variable nature. And I think I'll be very, very excited to be involved with some of that work here because we could assemble data sets which are months, years long, about individual bright, massive stars. And uh, that'll be very interesting to, to look at. Can't do it any other way. <laughs> and, and you know, around the world, that's how it's been done in many cases, right? Observatories of this kind have been building up these data sets. Mm. I think it's really interesting uh, to, to kind of consider um, the, the idea that some, some institutions in the United Kingdom, their, their telescopes are elsewhere, so in, in Chile or in, uh, on the Canary Islands. But I really like the idea of you're almost kind of returning to practical astronomy here, aren't you? It's, it's, it's like kind of proper nuts and bolts. It's, it's not kind of telling, telling, telling a computer halfway around the world what to look up. No, but, but they both have a place. You, yeah, know? I mean, you have yeah, to understand that. We, 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 we're, never going to make, we're never going to be able to address the real core problems in astrophysics any other way apart from those major facilities, which are, we are involved with, whether it's at, at ESO or with ALMA, with radio astronomy. Um, but here, what we've got is a chance to impart those same techniques, technical skills at some level, to give them an understanding of how you would analyze an image, how would you decode spectroscopy, to, to give them that insight it, it, and a practical insight so they can then go on and do this from the major observatories. And that's very, very important. So we can do that here. We can actually 
take spectra, decode the information, analyze the light, show them what's going on. And that's a tremendous insight. Uh, we're using software they'll, they'll end up using at some of those big observatories. So I think it's a question, it's a training ground. Yeah. It's a training ground. Brilliant. Well, um, Professor Pinja, thank you very much for, for uh, speaking to me today. And I'm really looking forward to the unveiling of the telescope. But uh, th thanks for inviting no, me. No, no, you're most welcome here. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.